Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I'm Dave. I'm Chris. How are you, Chris? <clears throat> Pretty good. That's it? Got a belly full of meat and <clears throat> potatoes and whatever we have. There's no potato. Potatoes. <laughs> meat and potatoes? <laughs> There's no potatoes. <laughs> that was deli- we had a d- potatoes. You ever seen that movie? No. You never seen um, Sling Blade? No. Then you should watch it. <clears throat> that was a delicious meal. We had a, a gyro fest of lamb, beef, chicken, rice, cucumber salad, roasted green peppers, onions, tomatoes, a little bit of uh, tortillas for some reason, even though I asked for pita, some tahini, some hummus, some hot sauce. I don't think that was hummus. What do you think it was? I think it was tzatziki and tahini. Even better. Tzatziki and tahini. I prefer hummus to the tahini. You? Totally. And I prefer um, pita to the whatever the fuck they gave us. Yeah, and they gave us like the ends of the fucking meat. They probably took it out of the tray at the bottom of the fucking thing. Oh, that's what it was. It was like... Shredded <clears throat> fucking bullshit. Shredded rat. Um, but this isn't foodie. This is dopey. The uh, dark comedy of drug addiction. I thought we were doing the, <laughs> the first episode of Foodie, the light comedy of bad gyro fare. No? All right. Let's do was the, that a fake laugh? <laughs> what the fuck is that? Should we do the, uh, the memo? Yeah, do the memo. All right. We got a guest calling in soon. A high-profile guest. But here's a... Wait, wait. Hold on. She's this, not that high-profile. Okay. This is a memo. Maybe she is. From a know. drug and alcohol counselor. It's short, and I think she asked us a question. And here we go. Hey, uh, Dave. Hey, Chris. Hey, Dopey Nation. Um, I'm sitting in my car right now. It's currently raining, and I'm getting ready to go to work. I figure this was a pretty good time to make a voice recording or audio recording, what have you. This is, like, pretty fucking awkward, though. Um, I sing. I'm a musician part-time, and I make recordings of me singing all the time, but just sitting here talking is... Is really weird. It's like real, really strange. I'm just expecting someone to respond, and it's like one of those long voicemails that you overhear people leaving, and then you're waiting. You're like, oh, I just thought you had a conversation with someone, and they're, they just left a really fucking long ass voicemail. I don't know. Whatever. I'm rambling, but um, I'm gonna try to keep this short and sweet. I've got lots of stories, but I'll save those for another time. Um, I am actually. A, I work in sub, substance abuse treatment. Um, I'm in school. I'm getting my master's right now in rehab and mental health counseling. And, you know, while I'm doing this, I do work in substance abuse treatment facility in a residential unit as like a recovery assistant counselor. So I don't really have the title of a full-on counselor yet. However, I'm still leading group sessions and, you know, working pretty intimately with the patients and, um, you know, I guess my question for today, because you guys have experienced treatment time and time again, and you know, you guys may or may not have stories with counselors that have resonated with you or what have you. Um, but in treatment or once you get to that like stage where you are accepting treatment and you're not in that stage of denial anymore and you know we call it the stage of change model where you're like really in, inclined to actually want to change your behavior um, I wanted to ask you guys and the rest of Dopey Nation maybe I mean what what seems to work like what is it that a counselor how can a counselor have a large impact on you because there's on, only so much praise and 
and um, recognition of good traits that you can do before it comes off as cheerleading, you know, like, or phony or, you know, inauthentic. And I like to be real with the people I work with, and I, and I don't see myself on any level above them. Um, in all honesty, I've, I've built a lot of, you know, great professional relationships with them. But what, what leads someone to be more inclined to saying like, wow, that counselor really broke through to me and I'm finally fucking getting it versus this is useless to me and, um, this treatment center sucks. So yeah, I I hope that question made sense. Um, but I am about to walk in and lead some group therapy. I reference you guys all the time. I'm like, you know, when you get out of here and you have access to podcasts, check out Dopey Nation if you're not if you're not easily triggered because this is it's some good shit. You guys are hilarious. I love it. And you know, as a future counselor, this is something I reference often. So keep killing it, and uh, I look forward to hearing back from you guys. What'd you think? What's her name? Her name is. Hold on a second, Samantha. Samantha, thank you so much for the voicemail. Yeah, thanks, Samantha. But when you tell your I patients was... to listen to Dopey, don't tell them to listen to Dopey Nation. Tell them to listen to Dopey Podcast. Yeah. But um, love that uh, you love it, and I love that you uh, you mention us to the, the group. Uh, I don't know in terms of the answer to the question. For me, it's like I think I just – I always say the same thing, which is that I never felt like I had a counselor – who is uh, that interested in me in any way, uh, positive, negative, or otherwise, I just kind of slipped through the cracks. But that could just be because the negative voice in my head was so loud that I didn't hear anything positive that the counselor would say. Yeah. Like, it would be meaningless to me. Yeah. Um, I, I think, what do, you, what, do you, what do you tell someone, how do you do it? I could literally fill like a whole podcast just on that question and I responded to it and I said this is like way too much to answer in an email. We'll definitely play it on the show and talk about it. <clears throat> For me, I mean there was – I think can think back and literally remember exactly which counselors were um, – kind of stood out of the pack in my active addiction. Even when I like didn't get sober and was crazy, I remember who was like good and who wasn't. And then there were specific people later on towards the end that really helped me. But what it boiled down the most for me, and um, and I always don't like necessarily saying this because I believe clinicians can be extremely helpful without revealing whether or not they're in recovery, but I had to see somebody, believe they had the same thing as me, and they had to have a quality that I wanted in my own life. And then that magical question would happen, which would be, how did you do it? And when I actually asked that and I meant that and I'm like, like, what did you do? Like, what do you do with your life? Like, how are you the way that you are? Because I kind of want to be like it. And they respond to something. The chances are that I'll do it. And I still maintain to this day that for substance abuse treatment, an hour in a session, an hour in a group, whatever, however often it is, that's not the panacea. The, the, the treatment, that's the treatment. The recovery happens outside of the meeting and it's the actions that you take. And what a good counselor can do is facilitate Exposure. a desire inside you to pursue something that's going to treat your addiction outside of group or session. Well, it's funny. Um, because I never had a count. It's like you're kind of... Uh, I'm sorry. I, one last thing I want to add in. 
that's for me. I didn't have significant trauma. There's people, you know, everybody's different. If I had a serious trauma background, that needs to be addressed in therapy with another person a lot of the times, you know. So, like, there were certain hurdles that I didn't have to go through, you know. And luckily, like, I was just basically, like, a run-of-the-mill genetic alcoholic addict and choosing a spiritual path like that was what was the most beneficial to me <clears throat> but that's still i feel like you're answering the question in a weird sort of way mm. to me i'm I, not i'm not and then i can get I'm, I, no, you, no, go, just, you go and then i'll get specific about no, no, the, no the i'm the just saying this it's like you're talking about like why would i mean so you, are you i'll just ask you does a counselor need to be an addict to move you though Okay, so I got sober the first time I did anything for my recovery. I've told this story on Dopey before. I've told it on the Share podcast. Was I met a psychiatrist who's not an addict at McLean's Hospital in Boston, and he was doing my biopsychosocial, and we got to the part about hallucinogenics. He got to that, and he saw I did hallucinogenics, even though I was a junkie, a cokehead, and alcoholic. And he's like perked up, and he's like, what hallucinogenics are you doing? And I was doing all these, this is 10 years ago, I was doing these weird research chemicals that nobody fucking knew, no psychiatrist Except knew Cormac. what they were. Yeah, Cormac knew what it was, but no psychiatrist knew what it was. And he knew all about it. He knew way more than me. And because of his knowledge about hallucinogenics, I respected him. And then he was like, what are you looking for, basically, with hallucinogenics? And I was like, you know, expanding consciousness. It was a, spiritual, a glimpse into the spiritual world. I liked that even when I was an active addict. And he could point and he you was, to yoga. And then he was like, you can get that in a way without taking drugs. And he told me shit to do. And I went and I did it and I experienced something. But other clinicians had made the same fucking suggestions to do similar things and I never did it. But it was like I respected him and he wasn't an addict. That was the first person that was helpful in my life. Since then though, every other person that was majorly helpful in the early stages most of them were addicts themselves now today because i'm a little bit more humble i can get something from anybody you know well but it's also like i'm also having a hard time because you're kind of in my mind in my what i'm experiencing from you right now is like you're kind of mixing up uh a therapist or a counselor with like a sponsor type or somebody in AA where you you want what they have of course like I, I, because ultimately what happened was therapy led me to AA right. therapy led just, me to yoga and that's sort of what I was trying to say no i i got you i'm yeah. just saying like i never i i think i never thought that i could be like a counselor like i was never like what what do you have that i want yeah the only thing a counselor and this is says how fucked up i am mm-hmm. The only thing a counselor did with me that was successful is they told me uh, that I'm not going to make it. It's like the first half of my counselors were like, you're going to be okay, kid. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you're young. You yeah. know, you get it together. Your life is going to go right on track. That was impactful for you to hear yeah. that. Well, no, when they, the, when, no, when he told you you're not going to make it. That well, was the impactful. first half was like, you know, I'd be scared and young and I'd be wanting them to tell me, that I can go out and, and have my life back. And in my mind, that meant I can go out and get high. Yeah. You know, and, I, and they were like, you're still young, you know, and I was, you know, semi-successful professionally. And they were like, if you just do this, this, and this, you know, this hiccup is not really going to impact you. Yeah. And those guys, like, basically were like, I was like, can I cop after yeah. after I leave this place? And they were like, well, you're going to do what you're going to do. They weren't talking about end-stage addict and you're going to die and stuff like that. Yeah. But I remember... uh guy in california and a public treatment out there he was just like your mother's dying you're gonna die uh it's not a game 
you're actually going to die. You're 34 years old. I think there was, was no people pleasing. He was just getting into you cut and dry. Well, also, but it's like it's the same sort of story. I told this on Dopey. He was a bass player, a professional bass player, who played on a, a song that I was in love with. You know, he played on the Welcome Back Cotter theme song. Yeah. And uh, which I was just a fucking huge fan of the tune, if not just the show. And for this guy to tell me that I was going to die, and just just you you know, it's all about I think to answer the question. Goodness of fit. Pardon? A goodness of fit. Is that what you're saying? What I was really going to say is like, you don't know where you're going to get the word. Yeah. And you don't know how it's going to hit you or why or what day or why it comes from this person and not this person, you know, and why you're not looking out the window at that moment, but you're actually paying attention. And the guy says it in an intonation that it's going to fucking pick up in your brain. And it's like a perfect convergence of all these different factors where all of a sudden you hear something. Yeah, there's no there's no real answer. But there there was it's like I want to answer the question though, like that she asked, and she was sort of saying when people were kind of willing and in that contemplative state, what could you do beyond being a cheerleader to be helpful? And like I think there are a bunch of basically okay. tools, and you can hone in over time and get better. Um, but before we even get to that question, I was thinking about the specific counselors, and there was three or four throughout my active addiction way before I stopped that I still remember. <coughs> it's I'm funny. sorry, say it again. There was like three or four counselors be- like during my like, crazy addiction that I still remember that were impactful when I was pre-contemplative. So this isn't even about her question. And one of them was uh, Bob Forrest, and he doesn't remember me. You know, Bob Forrest was the guy, Dopey Nation, that was on our show a few times, and um he was impactful because people had done, similar to what you're saying, either champion my thing or said you're going to die. And I just didn't believe that I was going to die. And Bob Forrest would just kind of, he would point at me and laugh at me. And everybody had just been taking it so serious. And for me, for like, for some reason, this guy was pointing and laughing at me, like in my personality. And like, it comes through in Dopey even. And like why this is, has like a therapeutic capacity for me and maybe for some other people out there. It was like that laughing at it was was kind of – was crucial. Do you know what he I mean? He could see through you too. Yeah, he could see through me and he was just like, you're a fucking idiot. You're you know a kid. I mean? But it wasn't – he wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing like, – I know the joke. Yes, exactly. It was, I like, was laughing know, with So you. that was impactful. But then when I was in that contemplative state, a lot more stuff stuck and I think the best counselors were – they saw if I had a passion in something that I was sort of interested in doing, they would encourage that in lieu of something else. They wouldn't be like, oh, this is the best evidence-based practice for treating addiction. It was like, oh, and this wasn't something that I did, but it's an example. Oh, you want to fucking go run a marathon? You know, like you want to run a marathon every day? That's a positive self-care intervention. We're talking probably not going <clears> to <throat> keep you sober, but they encourage that. But you're really talking about the power of the associative. Like – a fucking therapist who says... It's the bond, the therapeutic alliance. But also them just taking an interest in your interest and, and then kind of digging deep and saying, you could do this, you could do this, you can do this yeah. with that. You yes. like this, do... Like, I think that's a good answer for Samantha. Do your homework on your client and do your homework on your client's interest and throw a lot of stuff at them, but not too much or you'll get annoying. Yeah, and then and then if, like, they try something and it doesn't work, then maybe suggest something else, you know what I mean? And it's like, from there you can really, like, the, the client themselves or the alcoholic themselves will find what works for them and if they're willing to do it on their own. I mean, alcoholism is the only fucking disease 
where the, the, the afflicted person doesn't believe they have it or believes they can control it and won't take the medicine for it even when they have it, you know? So it's like a lot of like kind of self-recognition has to happen first. But the willing person does. The, the willing, willing person, person does. The willing person does, but you know what the willing person doesn't usually need a lot of the time? Is therapy. Right, they just need to go to AA. fucking follow, or they go do something, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, the best therapist, the, the best, my, my opinion is the best therapists, they're not the people who work with people in the contemplative state she's talking about. They're the people that take someone from a pre-contemplative state to a contemplative state. And that's what you can get paid for to do this treatment. Okay, so what else are you going to say? I don't know. I said. I say, good luck. You know, I, I think... And you're fucking onto it. The fact that you're reaching out, that you're asking this question, that you fucking care. You know, caring is huge. Caring, experience, like, these things are... It's just, though, it's so fucked important. up, though, because it's, like, it's really, really very much, like, you don't know who you're dealing with and why you're dealing with them on that day and how they are. Like, you could get me, you know, 15 years ago versus 10 years ago versus 5 years ago... Yeah. And like I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same client, and I would have a totally different reaction. So yeah. it's partially totally. random. No, and and I always like mentioning this story. And Dave, you've read it. I wrote the article about it. Is that I have a friend who credits his entire sobriety to somebody that remembered his name. And um, this isn't about treatment per se, but he went to an AA meeting, and he was a hardcore alcoholic for a long time. And then he went back the second day to go to the AA meeting and he was getting near the meeting and he was like super restless. He wanted to shy away from like any sort of social interaction. The meeting was like uproarious and like he, he was like nervous and he was like, fuck it. Like, I'm not going to the meeting. I'm going home. I'm going to get my $1 Celeste pizza and drink 40s like, you know, like he always does. And the door greeter from the day before saw him like 20 feet away and said, hey, Will, and the fact that the guy fucking remembered his name. Was enough he to was such decide. low self-esteem. Right. And he was so blown away the guy knew his name. He went into the meeting and he literally traces everything back to that hey will. But, and it's, again, it's a random action that hit him in the right moment at, at the, the right, right time. time. It, that's why it's the miracle of recovery. And right. I hate using that cheesy shit, but it's a miracle sometimes. He's a lonely fucker. Every, we're all lonely fuckers. It's nice. It's like, you know, wouldn't you want to get away where everybody knows your name? Exactly. Making your way in the world today <laughs> takes everything you've got. <laughs> Taking a break. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I live for theme songs. And we're going to get back to the theme song contest. Yeah, we're going to get back to the theme song challenge. And sorry if we haven't answered your email. We're kind of getting behind on emails. But right now, we have a big time guest. Her name is Alexis Nares. She's part of the Bling Bling crew or something? She, she is a part of the Bling Bling crew. Is that what it is? And I just wrote is her. Is it really the Bling Bling crew? It's called the Bling Ring. I knew it wasn't. And some robberies thing. But <laughs> she's a drug addict. I said, she said she didn't want to talk about the case. And I said, uh, do you have any good drug stories, though? And she said, like the time I snuck 300 oxys in my vagina on a trip to Paris when I was 17. Yeah, that's a good one. And she said, or the time when I was so high and walked up to Travis Barker in a club and asked him if he wanted to have sex with twins. And yes, Test and I used to pretend we were twins with his wife next to him. I got in because I was friends with blah, blah, blah. Shut up. Call this bling bling chick. She's very pretty, Dopey Nation, by the way. What's her name? Alexis. You gotta hold the phone where the butt is right there, up to the mic, like right here. I love it when you hold the phone. I don't have to do anything. Hello? Hey, Alexis, this is Dave. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? 
I'm good, thank you. And I'm with Chris. Hey, Alexis. Hi, Chris. How's it going? I'm well, thanks. She went, right. she went to the movies. You went to the, and by the way, Alexis, you're really, really attractive. I saw your picture. <laughs> well, thank you. All right. And you have two kids? I do. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And you're married happily? Very happily. Oh, it's yeah. just good for Chris to I hear was, these things. <laughs> I was just okay. giving her a compliment, Dave. It's just I'm just making sure that he understands the nature of the of the beast here, Alexis. That's all. Yeah, yeah my husband and I uh, got married about five, a little over five years ago. We're very happy and uh, busy. It gets great. It's hard to make time for these date nights and stuff, but you know, quality problems. No kidding. I, I have a seven-year-old, so I understand what you're saying. Okay. Um, you went with yeah. him to see Baby Driver. The movie was—I heard the movie was awesome. It's good. So good. It's so different. Good. It's the, very, very different. You saw it? Yes, yeah, I saw it. Yeah. There's good it music, right? Great. Yeah, the whole soundtrack was awesome. The acting was great. It was—it was just—it was very good. How do you know? Very, Bo- very good. And Bob Forrest hooked us up with Alexis. How do you know Bob? So, um, my husband started a sober living, uh, actually right when we, right before we got, um, actually it was more towards when we first started dating, he invested the last of whatever little money he had left with a couple of business partners into starting a sober living. And, uh, we found out very quickly that it wasn't very profitable to have a sober living. So we... I had a baby on the way, and we decided to start a treatment center, and uh, Bob had a client, and he heard about these crazy Canadians who were kind of taking a different approach to treatment, which was similar to Bob's philosophy, and um, he brought the client over, and eventually Bob and my husband and his partner got into business together. And now Bob runs groups out of Aloe, which is our treatment center, and he is the, I believe he's the creative director. Um, he runs a group open to the public that um, is awesome. I mean, you know Bob, he's great. He could just talk about anything for hours, and he's just, he's got so much knowledge about addiction, and he really has a way of connecting with people that's unique. And his approach actually is what got my sister sober. Um, and, you know, I really don't think that she would have made this journey um, as quickly as she did had I not started working with Bob to kind of help her get sober. And, yeah, I mean, he's just awesome. Right he on. Bob. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, I, I kind of started you off by saying our next guest uh, shoved 300 Oxycontins in her vagina before she no. went to Paris. So <laughs> read it wrong. Three. Ma- 30. 300 would be a lot. Well, I figured you just had a mammoth vagina, no? <laughs> 30. And yes, uh, my mother taught me how to fly with contraband from a very young age. And yes, I mean, when you need to get somewhere and you don't have a legal prescription, you do what you have to do. <laughs> And when did your mother so, start teaching you to smuggle uh, contraband? <laughs> um, my mom, uh, God bless her, uh, was an extremely, you know, liberal parent. She believed that she was more my friend than she was my mom. And um, we began consuming um, 
taught together from, I mean, I was fairly young. And, uh, yeah, and she traveled uh, with it wherever she went. So, you know, kids pick up on things. So she was teaching you how to to smuggle weed, basically, when you were a teenager Uh, or something. Yeah. And when, yeah, did, so when, was, when did your whole thing go from being like a, a pothead to this more uh, dangerous spot? Oh, really, really quickly. So um, I got sober when I was 19. I'm 26 now. Um, so that kind of just tells you how quickly my uh, addiction took off and how quickly it ended, um, which I'm lucky it did because when you're an IV heroin user, especially these days, the chances are slim that you get the help that you really need and you stay sober. So um, I began using oxys when I was uh, just about to turn 16 years old. And from 16 to 19, I had a really progressive, very quick run. Um, My oxy habit um, eventually turned to heroin when I ran out of money. And the smoking heroin eventually turned into shooting up heroin pretty quickly because my tolerance was just far too high to smoke dope. It was and all it was all uh, tar in Southern California? Yeah, yeah. I had, um, it was right around that time where they started making oxys like impossible to smoke. You couldn't take the coating off anymore either. Mm-hmm. And so we made the switch to um, heroin. And I mean, uh, there are, I have several fun stories that, you know, I look back now and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was crazy, you know, and I can laugh at myself and laugh at the situation, but I had a lot of, like, really horrible stuff happen from, like, the beginning. Like, I remember my first uh, drug dealer, um, he lived in an apartment off of DeSoto, and I was maybe 16 years old, and um, I ran away from home because my mom was catching on to the fact that I was using drugs, and I had you know, no capability of functioning um, when I was so high. And I went and stayed at his house, and the problem was that I didn't know that he had a huge girlfriend. And, I mean, like, very, a lot taller and bigger than I was. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, she came home in the middle of the night and uh, woke me up, and it was not pretty. I mean, I was running towards the front door and she ran after me, grabbed me by the back of my hair, started punching me in the back of my head and threw me down the flight of stairs. And somehow I like did not learn my lesson. I continued to use that drug dealer for a very, very long time. He stole $10,000 from me out of my hotel when I was living in a Best Western and shooting my reality TV show. I mean, it was a nightmare. So like my, my, but you know, people saw me as this, like, crazy Hollywood party girl who was filming a reality TV show and going to Mexico and fighting this court case and everything was kind of, you know, somewhat okay, but I was a hot mess. Like, you could totally tell that I was on drugs. The Alexis back then is unrecognizable to me. Um, so, Alexis, were you, were you, do, forgive me, were you on the reality mm-hmm. show before the robbery? Yeah. And that was on E? Yeah. Can I say the name of it? Yeah. So she was on a show called Pretty Wild. How did they find you? So Tess and I 
um, started, Tess and I both, I graduated high school when I was 16 years old, and my mom was a model, and she, I mean, I think she would admit to this now, but she, like, pretty much, like, sent this out. Like, she was our manager, and we were going to try to model, and, you know, Tess went on to become, like, play me, um, she wanted to be a, a cyber girl, cyber girl of the year, so she kind of took that turn, but before all of that, we were doing music videos, so, like, I would do, like, um, Marilyn Manson music videos and do like back background dancing and background for um, music videos and we began meeting people in Hollywood and my mom I mean I couldn't I was 17 years old and my mom would let me go out for like days and I would just hang out with all of these like Hollywood club promoters and while I was out there I met like tons of celebrities and started making lots of connections and um I basically, like, we lied about our entire life. Like, we said that we were 20-year-old twins. We didn't tell anybody that we, like, lived home with our parents or that we were really 17 years old. And Do you um, think they would have cared, though? No, absolutely (laughs) not. No. I don't think they would have cared at all. But um, basically what ended up happening was we worked on this movie and, like, we kind of stole the show like I don't know there was something about Tess and I when we're high like a different side of us comes out and the producer found us and he was like hey you want to shoot a pitch for a reality show and we were like uh yes we do as much to the F word I don't know if I can cuss or not I cuss a lot you can curse as much as you want okay so I was like oh fuck yes we do (laughs) and he came to our house and met my mom and my mom, you know, as you know, is this, like, wild, crazy, like, free, loving, hippie chick with, like, life-size Buddhas in her house. And um, everything seemed, like, attractive to them to, like, shoot this show. And um, we shot a sizzle reel. And then all of a sudden, we didn't think it was really going to go anywhere. And then A&E and E started a bidding war for the show. And eventually, we met with Chelsea Handler, and she's like, I want it, I want to produce it. And because of Chelsea, we decided to go with E, and so that's how we got the show. It's wild. It's like some it's like it's, some, some other simple life kind of show, but with drug addict hot girls who get wild and crazy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, they obviously didn't show our drug addiction on the show, but, I mean, we... Would we were mic'd like all the time, and so the sound guy. I mean, we used to do really mean tricks to him. Like he would be filming in another room, and um, he would be filming with like my mom and my dad, and we'd whisper into our mics like, "I can't wait to pinch your little ass later." And we would be, <laughs> we would just like mess with him all the time. But he caught us on a regular basis, like getting completely loaded. Like we would be out in our car smoking dope, and like forget to turn off our mics because we're high and so there's like so he everyone knew i mean we went to mexico in our episode and tess was kicking drugs the entire episode that we were there that's why there's not much like test footage and that was one of the reasons why she called tmz on me when i was not supposed to be in mexico because i was fighting a court case and told them that i was there was because she wanted to come back early to because score. She needed to score, and we we went out into the streets of Palo, like looking for drugs everywhere. 
<laughs> and we could not find drugs anywhere. And we went through the, like, I think we bought, like, 25 oxys with us. We went through those in, like, a few days. Because no drug addict can hold on to drugs. There's just no no way. Oh, and I think the producer ends up catching us with, like, the last five that we had. And so they just flush them down the toilet. Oh, it was a nightmare. It was, that like, producer's so an worse. idiot. He's going to have his talent dope sick. He's, <laughs> he's going to be like, listen, yeah, young ladies. <laughs> she had no idea. Like, they had no idea what they were getting into. I mean, God bless them. Like, they had no clue. So, I mean, it was a nightmare. And, you know, and with all that money, like, we were, we had, we were blowing $10,000 a week on oxys. I mean, it was really bad. And eventually, um, we ran out of money and we were living in a Best Western. The whole time we were filming the show, we were living in a Best Western and I was driving a shitty little Acura. Um, and it was, it would like break down all the time. It was like a nightmare. And, um, we couldn't even afford money for like tinfoil. We would go downstairs. This, this hotel has cast the 101 in it, which is like a famous cafe in Hollywood. And we'd go downstairs every day and be like, can I get some tinfoil to wrap up the leftovers? <laughs> After like the fifth week of living there, they were like, dude, we know you didn't eat food here. Like, you're not getting any more tinfoil from us. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you would just like, smoke yeah. heroin with tinfoil at the Best Western? Was that the move? Yeah. Like, that That was pretty much it. And then, you know, quickly, like, smoking dope didn't work anymore. And we moved to, like, IV. Every time that, like, I started a drug, bad stuff would happen. Like, I started Oxy, and I got the crap beat out of me by that girl. Right. And then I started using heroin, and, you know, I blew all my money, and I would put myself in risky situations all the time. I had a lot of fun. Like, I did heroin with some really crazy people. Like, I'm not going to out any of the more infamous people that I did dope with. I had some great times. I had horrendous times. And, was it Corey Feldman? Um, no. <laughs> was it Slash from Guns N' Roses? No, that <laughs> oh, would well. be really awesome, but yeah. no. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I had some great moments, but some really horrible moments, too. And, um, you know, the first time that my sister and I shot dope, she overdosed. My drug dealer, whose house we were at, was like, get the f- uh, fuck out of here. Like, you're not calling 911. I got through her in my car and I got this strength. My sister was like completely unresponsive. She starts like puking in my car, but unresponsive. I pull over, I start the CPR, a cop sees, he like somehow, he knocked cancer and she just wakes up and she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to go to the hospital. I just took too many Adderall and didn't eat. And they like let us go. Like there was so many signs that like this is all bad. But, I mean, we just kept going until it didn't work anymore. And I ended up getting caught with 0.01 grams of heroin. You know how small that is? It's, like, not even it's enough a, to It's a point out. of a point. It's, it's a like tenth of a point. It's, it's nothing, <laughs> okay? Where was it? And in my wallet. How did they find it? Some, because they raided my house because I couldn't show up to probation because I was constantly trying to find drugs and I had no money and I was like panhandling and every time I panhandle I'd get myself into trouble like there was this one chick 
that pulled up. I was begging people for money. I was like, oh, we need some cash to get back to Santa Barbara. We blah, blah, blah. So we'd make a little bit of cash, right, at this gas station down off of Winneka, the 101. And um, this chick pulled up, and she goes, they're here every day. Don't give them any money. And I looked at her, and I was like, what did you say, bitch? And she was like, don't give them any money. And then I got in my car and I was trying to drive away with this guy's 20 bucks that he just gave me to go get some dope. And she tried to back into my car. So I lit a cigarette and threw it in her hair. <clears throat> and her hair started catching on fire. And then I ran my car into hers and then pulled off over the driveway and drove away. Wow. My I mean, first, my like, first reaction for some reason is like, it must be easier to be a heroin addict when you're a hot girl. But that quickly fades away, doesn't it? No. Like, it doesn't last very long. It works when you're, like, a hot girl that doesn't do heroin. Like, my early days of, like, partying and clubs, like, everybody loved us. They threw us, like, six different 21st, like, quote-unquote 21st birthday parties when we were really, like, 17 and 18 years old at, like, the top clubs in Hollywood. I mean, like, we never had problems until... You know, our basically our addiction took off, and that was that. I mean, I've had guns pulled on me by drug dealers. I mean, I've had like horrible stuff. So heroin I mean, addiction—it like, really levels the playing field between the attractive and the unattractive. Then. Oh yeah, no, and you just become an unattractive person. I mean, like when I went to rehab, I was such an asshole. Nobody wanted to be friends with me. Nobody. I was voted least likely to succeed in rehab because I was such an asshole. I was eventually not even allowed to go to um, to groups. I had to just do one-on-one therapy because I was so freaking disruptive. And I would show up to meetings and I would be like, I just don't relate to any of you. Like, I know the only reason I use heroin is because of my history of abuse. Like, I'm a, I'm a normal person. All of you have problems. I don't have problems. Like, I was horrible. I was really horrible. And just not, I don't, I don't know. I mean. So what, what was what? the what was the turning point then? When, when did you start uh, deciding so, to? The turning point was I was, I had a suspended sentence. I was, um in treatment for a year. Well, where were, you in, where were you in treatment? I went to um, Soba Recovery in Malibu. Okay. And, um, and I did a whippet. <laughs> and that one freaking whippet brought me to my knees so hard. I, I just, I sat in this car with a bunch of, you know, I'm lucky that I wasn't, like, really doing, like, hard drugs. I was going to test dirty for and throw all my freaking sobriety down the trash, you know. And not only that, I mean, I did throw my sobriety down the trash. I mean, my chance at, at staying in treatment right. and turning my life around, because he could have just sent, if I got caught with that, he could have just sent my ass to prison for three to six years. And, um, you know, I went back to this meeting I don't go to AA anymore but I was like really active um, after that experience and I ended up actually um, 
asking my husband, I'm like, do you know of any really great female, um, female sponsors? And he was like, yeah, I do, actually. And he gave me this chick's number. And I called this chick, and she goes, I can't sponsor you. I don't want to sponsor you. And I was like, you don't want to sponsor me? Okay. She goes, you can call this other girl, Deborah. And I was like, okay. So um, I started working with Deborah, and I got what happened was I got off of all of the antidepressants and stuff that they put me on in treatment. And I really, like, just, I didn't do anything except for go to three meetings a day, saw my therapist, and met with my sponsor for, like, months and months and months. And when I came back to the meeting, like, the lights were on. Right. That's how Ben describes it. He was like, you came back and you were just, like, a completely different person. And I was, and I, you know, I found, like, we're so lucky in Southern California, and I don't know how it is in New York, but I'm sure it's similar, especially in certain parts of New York, but we have this community of young people, AA, like, these awesome Thursday night meetings in West Hollywood that are, like, from 10 to midnight, you know, and, and just so much, it's just young AA and these amazing circuit speakers, and, um, and yeah, I mean, it just, that's what really worked for me in the beginning, and then... Um, I ended up going to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor while I was in re- because the owner of the treatment center was like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, you can't just be like, I remember him telling me once, I think he said, like, you just can't be a pretty face. Like, you have to do something with your life when you get out of here. Otherwise, you're going to have nothing to look forward to. And so I ended up going to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor. And it was like the best decision that I ever made for myself. I uh, got a job right away while I was, I was in sober living. I was working a job. I was going to meetings. I was seeing my therapist and doing group uh, treatment center. And, um, and yeah, and I just, that, it just works for me. And I, I don't go to AA anymore. I'm really open about that. Why'd um, you stop going? So, I, I'm still in therapy. I see a therapist once a week, and um, I really had a hard time finding meetings that were, like, really solution-based, and I do have a really hard time hearing in meetings. I guess maybe I'm fortunate. Maybe I was young, and I, I don't know if it was the time that I got sober or when I got sober, um, something just changed for me. Like, really, you know, my desire to, like, check out is fully gone. Like, I I love to check in. I check in every day, all day long. I try to be as present as possible. I do meditation. And, you know, I still work with others in other ways, but I had a really hard time going to meetings where I'd hear these people with one year to a was like I'm one I'm one step away from the drink. Well or, I think I think like you have that, you know, practice these principles in all of our affairs and like sometimes for some people when they start doing that naturally and, you know, being yeah. altruistic and helping other people, they can kinda distance themselves from the traditional like going to meetings and working out of the book and you just practice it in your life naturally. Yeah, and you know, I think that um I think that 
a lot of the times too, and this is this is what I saw myself doing as I was like using AA kind of as a crutch, and like I didn't, I don't really like, I just don't like calling myself an alcoholic all the time. You know, it's funny because um, when I when Bob told me about the show, and he kind of told me a little bit about what it was about, and then you texted me and you you were told me about you know just like the war stories and stuff that's relatable and stuff to share. I literally had to text my sister Tess like. Give me our best war stories. Like, I really had to, like, rack my brain to remember, like, what that life was like. And it's not so much that, like, I forget who I was. Like, I was really clear on who I was and what I went through and how hard I've worked and how hard it was. So, like, the details of, of it seem kind of fuzzy to me now, you know? And, um... I, hear I don't you. know. It's different. Let me let me say two things, Alexis. The first thing is, you should go back to AA. Come on, these people need you. You got to show up. You got to be an example. You got to take the next fucked up party girl under your wing and say, "I can sponsor you." you got come on. You got to get back. I'm, I'll be the Jewish guilt in your head. You got to go back. Just show up once a month. Say what's up. How you guys doing? Yeah. Keep it green. Yeah, I think that, about that sometimes, and you know, it's um. I I will say this. Um, I think it's really important to be of service. And I am very active, like, with the social media following that I do have. Like, I'm constantly talking to people. I'm constantly open about the fact that I'm in recovery. I'm constantly talking to people, like, hey, I'm recovered. You can, too. If you ever need help, you reach out to me. No, right on. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. but I do you know, think I have sh- to say, like, in the last three years yeah. that I haven't gone to AA, yeah. honestly, my life has never been better. And I feel, I still feel happy and joyous and free. I still feel like, um, I feel, I just feel really whole, you know? I also practice Buddhism. I, you know, I am in therapy. Alexis, you know who wants to hear that stuff? How happy, joyous, and free you are? The poor fuckers <laughs> at the meeting. <laughs> I um, know. I'm just, I'm going to give you a break because Chris is giving me the evil eye. He thinks I'm being too hard on you. But, you're not being too hard on me. You know, I, your, your point is um, valid. Uh, I'll, I'll share this. I don't really care. I mean, I'll, I'll share my experience with you when... Um, when I, when my daughter was 18 months, I started having about 10, 10 panic attacks a day. And um, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And my my sponsor, who was pretty much adamantly against medication, Deborah? I got off medication, Deborah, um, said, you know, pump up your meetings, pump up your meetings. And I'd go to meetings and I would literally be having like panic attacks in meetings and I like could not function anymore as a parent. So, I went to a psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist put me on Lexapro. Well, I woke up and at 4 in the morning with 186 heart rate. I was pretty much like having a heart attack. And they rushed me to the ER, and they shot me up with a bunch of different meds to like slow my beta blockers and out of them and all this stuff, okay? And so I went back to my psychiatrist, and I said, I said, doctor, it's not working for me. And he said, well, what about... Prozac. I said, okay. So I've already tried, you know, in my life, well, Butrin affects her. I've tried all these meds. So I said, okay, I'll try Prozac. 
six weeks after trying Prozac, I called my husband and I said, um, you need to come home and take care of your daughter. And I told him I was going to kill myself. It made me suicidal. Mm. And um, by the grace of God, like I did not kill myself that day. Um, and I stopped that medication. And I found this amazing doctor who is an MD and a holistic doctor out of, out of uh, Sherman Oaks. And I started seeing her. And she ran on the blood work. She said, your cortisol levels are off and your... Um, hormones are off and you know clearly you're depressed and you're having all of these issues so she started me on all of these different supplements well in the meantime I was still having all of these panic attacks and I started experimenting with um, CBD and what is that it was like, it's cannabinoid, cannabinoid I knew it <laughs> and so I started using CBD and it was life changing for me the problem is that um, you know AA does not really like that <laughs> they're not they didn't seem very like open and receptive towards it and I refuse to be inauthentic and I refuse to be in a community that doesn't fully you know accept me for the way that I am and today I'm a hundred percent better and, um, and I don't need to use CBD oil anymore um, but there are times when um, alternative, me- alternative measures may be needed. And for me, um, instead of, you know, using Valium for six months, CBD oil worked. And, yeah, I tried Valium, too. I tried Kalonitin, too. I tried it all right. when I was having these, these panic days. I mean, it was really, really challenging for me. Um, and I felt like, you know, I couldn't talk to my sponsor because she's completely against medication. And, um, I, you know, at that point I had completely left, um, I was going to like a lot of Pacific group meetings in the beginning of my, I don't know if you guys know Pacific group is. We have the Atlantic group, which is like the same thing. Yeah, the medication period, but... You know, so that's my experience, and, you know, I share that experience pretty pretty openly now, um, but it's unfortunate that I can't share that experience in AA, and in this day and age, um, when things are changing so rapidly and more and more science is coming out about the long-term effects of opiate use, and I actually just recently did a documentary, um where they interviewed me about, um, you know, my journey into sobriety and what it looks like today and why I think we're dealing with the opiate crisis that we are. And one of the uh, producers told me that they had interviewed a uh, one of the top research scientists um, who studies the long-term effects of opiate addiction. And she says, you know, people with opiate addiction that I use um, for the rest of their lives, they can experience pain up to 200 times worse than anybody else because of their opiate addiction. And um, she goes, until we figure out a way for people to deal with that pain and um, to further research with, like, using CBD and alternatives, you know, we're really doing a disservice to people. So that's my, my experience and my story. And, you know, I have a hard time going to AA and, and sharing that experience. I hear you. Uh, 
And we're open. Also, just so you know, like we're open with like Dave and I are both twelve step guys, but we like really believe there are like many paths into and out of addiction. We support harm reduction. We kind of support like a multi-pronged approach and whatever gets you there. And we have a fucking ridiculous taboo podcast. So we're obviously okay with people's <laughs> stories. And as you said earlier, just from hearing you talk, like I think the lights are on, they're still on. And this is just part of your path. Yeah. And I would, I would love some cannabis oil, but uh, I'd lose custody of my daughter. If I was smoking weed. Be over. Uh, no. Well, I think that there's a misconception, too. Like, CBD oil actually doesn't have THC in it. Like, you don't get high off of it. It's just an extract from the plant. You have to have THC to get high. It's really actually quite interesting. So, huh. yeah, I mean, it's like it's not mind in a mind-altering substance. Like, there's, it doesn't get you high at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just... It's interesting, and, you know, I, when I, um, I'd say the lights really came on for me when I was about two and a half years sober, and I found out about the ACE studies. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the... The adverse childhood experiences? Experience, yeah. Yeah. And I started following a lot of Dr. Gabor Mate, and I was starting to go to a lot of, a lot of his talks, and I ended up um, actually interviewing him for Vice uh, Magazine when I was writing for them several years back and I started really realizing like how much trauma um, affected every area of my life and I didn't really have a chance because on the ACE studies it says if you score four or higher um, you know you're uh, you're at risk for you know X, Y, and Z I scored nine out of ten on wow. that test yeah. so I really had like no chance at yeah. um, turning out normal and through the um, help of an amazing therapist. I mean, my therapist is just an incredible woman, and by doing the EMDR and and uh, really working through that trauma, I, I was able to stop seeing myself as a victim, and, um, you know, a little bit more healing came, um, you know, every time I'd have a session, and here we are six and a half years later, and, um, and I feel really whole. And like I said, like, I really, my, my using was just check out, check out, check out. I'd never want to be checked in. I'd never want to feel anything. I'd never want to experience any of my emotions. And now my life is, like, just so great and so wonderful. And it's all about checking in, you know. And no, I hear you. Do you, do you still do um, the, the treatment work? Do you still work with addicts and alcoholics and stuff, or not anymore? Not right now. I'm going to go back to school. I want to get my kid back, too. I was thinking about doing that in January. Um, you know, I actually was talking to my husband and his business partner, Jared, when we were up um, in San Francisco a few months ago. And I was like, I have to do something about this opiate epidemic. Um, you know, the statistics about how many people there's, like, several hundred thousand opiate addicts, right, and only like 10% of them ever go to treatment, and it's just, it's so sad, and every day, like, hundreds of them are dying, and we've got this crisis, and I have to do something about it, and um, Bob actually 
heard me speak at a meeting, I was speaking to a bunch of parents who all have kids who are um, active in addiction. Yeah, he was telling us about that. I was giving a talk, and he goes, wow, Alexis, I've never heard you speak before. Like, you really need to do something, Um, you know, and you've got to get back to the game. I was like, oh, Bob, I've got two young kids, please. There's no time for that right now. I said, maybe when, like, they're 10. I'll go back to work, and um, he's like, you have to, you have to get back in the game, and I thought about it for a while, and I was like, I know, I'm going to start, like, an old-school cry help, I don't know if you guys remember cry help before it accepted insurance, right, like, I want to, I want to have a place that only specifically deals with opiate addiction, Um, I mean, if there's coke coexisting disorders or it's like opiate and meth that's one thing but like we don't deal with alcohol we don't deal with like just cocaine we just really tackle and we focus on the opiate epidemic and we design our programs specifically around that we accept medical and medicaid and we have x amount of beds that are non-profit beds and so now i'm in the process of figuring out like how do i write a grant to get this funded Who's going to help me? You know, like, what does my team look like? And what's the best way to do this? Like, do we need to find an old folks home that has X amount of beds, like kind of a hospital-style setting? And this is something that I really want to do and that I really want to take on, and I want to do it not from, like, a punitive approach. My husband's treatment center, um, with the help of Bob, it's, we have this whole... Um, thought process of connection not control like addicts need connection they need um to feel like they're a part of a community in order to thrive and um you know and from there from building those attachments with healthy individuals you know we can start working on self-esteem building and we can start working on um you know, autonomy, like all of these kids that are hooked on drugs, like all of them still have mom and dad, and they're like 30 years old. Right. They're 30 years old, living with mom and dad. They've never had a job before in their life, and they're like hooked on heroin. It's a huge problem. Yeah. And so they need help. And right now on my Facebook, we just recently shot a um, four-minute-long video that Bob um, was he was so amazing and he did all the, the audio for it and all of the um, voiceover and I posted a 60 second clip and like literally I've got you know this one girl who like has no insurance she's like where do I go and this other girl she's like I have crappy insurance and I'm in Ohio and I need help and you know and it's like okay I'm going to do the very best that I can to help all of these people but there's just not the resources for people to get out of the, the hole that they're in and going to the methadone clinic every day and it's just freaking terrible well so i'm planning on going back to school in january i'd like to go and get my kid out too and i'd like to get back in the game and i'm like really motivated i just need to find the right people to collaborate with that are on the same page with me and have the same like vision well, it sounds like a plan to me. Chris is in school for his Ph.D. in psychology. I just finally got the application for the KSAC here. And I think you've gotten the wrong idea about Dopey. Because Dopey is not about war stories. Dopey is about a way for addicts not to feel shame and to, to feel like they have hope that 
Sobriety can be fun. Well, if she listens to the first ten episodes or so, she's going to think it's about work. She's not going to listen to anything. (laughs) Alexis isn't going to listen to it. I will. I am going to listen. I told Bob said, "Do you listen to podcasts?" And I said, "No, I don't. I only listen to like Audible and Howard Stern." Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I like listen to Audible and Howard Stern, but I am going to listen. And you know what? I will say this in in. The majority of the relationships with women that I've had, the first several times that we've sat down, it's just sitting around and talking about war stories because, you know what, it means that I'm human and you're human. There's no judgment here. Like, you know... Not to mention... I threw a cigarette in some woman's hair and lit it on fire, okay? There's like, there's, you know, we all have our moments of of shame the beauty is that the more that you talk about them the less shame you feel and the more freedom you get and then you're able to finally put pen to paper and then you're able to go out into the world feeling like a normal human being again and you're able to go back to these people and make sure amends and and feel good about your position in the world and become hopefully a fully autonomous productive member of society again that's that, the goal so that sounds good to me but but you're also missing the obvious point that throwing a cigarette into somebody's hair is funny if you look <laughs> at it in the right way it's not just a sad story it's a comic gem <laughs> i'm sorry yeah i'm sorry i mean i look back on it now and it was funny but at the time i wanted to really hurt that woman and get away from her with my drug money so i could go score And even when the big woman came home and punched you in the back of the head, even though you felt pain, I still laugh. I think it's funny. Um, Forgive me. Um, And thank you so much for calling. And and, and if you want allies, you have the dopey is on your side. Whatever you need from us, you tell us. Right, Chris? That's right. And uh, check out our show. I will. No, I absolutely will, and I appreciate... Oh, my God, it's been almost an hour. I appreciate you listening to me ramble for an hour. No, it was great. <laughs> it was fucking awesome. You, you, were, you, were, you were a very, very, very dopey guest, and we appreciate that, uh-huh. and your message was clear. We like that. Oh, thank you. Hmm. All right, well, I hope you guys have a good night. Thanks for having me on, and I will absolutely listen to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks Alexis. Thanks, Alexis. Have a good night, Thanks. okay? Good night. Bye. Bye. She was awesome, man. The lights are on. The lights are on. What do you got? Articulate, smart, um, everything. Do you have anything else? What are we gonna do about Brian Connolly? I don't think. Ooh, let's call Brian right now. I don't. I want to give him time, though. We don't have time to give him. What time is it? It's an hour and four minutes. We're at an hour and four minutes. Yeah, we don't. I don't want to rush him. Oh, but it's Brian Connolly. Well, just tell him somebody the bling ring went way over. The leader of the bling ring. We. She said, "Don't talk about that." Yeah. You play something. Play one one verse forever and dead. Just one verse. I don't do your weird sugar packet doling out of forever and dead. Just fucking play one verse for me. It's my birthday. It's, it's my birthday. not your birthday. It's my birthday. It's, it's not your birthday. It's my birthday. No, I'll play a different song. Ugh. But it's it's not your birthday. Ugh. How long is this song? It's pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> some time I don't mind it suits me fine we'll see yeah we'll see and on the other 
Yeah, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Stay strong. Do all the stuff that we always ask you to do. Write a review. You know what I mean. Toodles? Don't say toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had